Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. För jag är stuggad. Ostrad. Jag säger. Jag Welcome to the 353rd of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we will be continuing the South with Scott book by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled and fatal journey south. And then we'll carry on with the mysteries of three John Silent stories. Let's head to that white continent. Those were such happy days during the first Cape Evans summer. For the most part, we had hot weather and could wash in the thaw pools which formed from the melting snow and even draw our drinking water from the cascades which bubbled over the sun-baked rock, much as they do in summertime in Norway. The progress made by Davis and his crew of voluntary carpenters was amazing. One week after our arrival at the Cape, Nelson, Mears and I commenced to cut a cave out of the ice cap above our camp for stowing our fresh mutton in. When knock-off work time came, Bowers, Nelson and I made our way over to the ship with a hundred gallons of ice from this cave, to be used for drinking water. It all helped to save coal and nobody made a journey to or fro empty-handed if it could be helped. Once on board, we took the opportunity to bathe and to shave. In this country, it is certainly a case of where I dines, I sleeps. So after supper on board, we coiled down in somebody's beds and slept until 5.30 the next morning, when we returned to the camp and carried on all day, making great progress with the grotto, which was eventually lit by electric light. We had plenty of variety in the matter of work. One part of the grotto was intended for Simpson's magnetic work, and this was the illuminated section. Whenever people visited the ice caves, we got them to do a bit of picking and hewing, even roping in Captain Scott, who did a healthy half-hour's work when he came along our way. Scott and Wilson got their hands in at dog-driving now, as I did occasionally myself. Nobody could touch Mears or Dimitri at dog-team work, although later on Cherry Garrard and Atkinson became the experts. The hut was finished externally on January the 12th, and fine stables built up on its northern side. This complete, Bowers arranged an annex on the south side from which to do the rationing and provision issues. How we blessed all this fine weather! It was hardly necessary to wear snow glasses, in spite of so much sunshine, for the glare was relieved by the dark rock and the sand around us. When all the stores had been discharged from the ship, she lightened up considerably, and Campbell then set to work to ballast her for Pennell. Mears amused the naval members of our party by asking with a childlike innocence, had they got all the cargo out of the steamer? Yet there was nothing wrong in what he said, but our Terra Nova Royal Yacht Squadron and cargo and steamer, how our naval pride was hurt. Incidentally, we called the Sandy Strand, before the winter snow came and covered it and blotted it all out, Hurrah Beach. The bay to the northward of the winter quarters we christened Happy Bay. Although our work physically was of the hardest, we lived in luxury for a while. Nelson provided cocoa for Captain Scott and myself at midnight, just before we slept. He used to make it after supper and keep it for us in the great thermos flask. We only washed once a week and we were soon black with sun and dirt, but in splendid training. In the first three weeks, my shore gang, which included the lusty Canadian physicist Wright, carried many hundreds of cases, 
walked miles daily, dug ice, picked, shoveled, handed ponies, cooked and danced. Outwardly, we were not all prototypes of the sentimental bloke, but occasionally, in the stillness of the summer nights, we, some of us, unbent a bit, when the sun stood low in the south, and all was quiet and still, and we did occasionally build castles in the air and draw home pictures to one another, pictures of English summers, of river picnics and country life that framed those distant homes in gold, and made them look to us like little bits of heaven. However, what was more important, the stores were all out of the Terra Nova, even stationery, instruments, chronometers, and we could have removed into the hut at a pinch a week before we did, or gone sledging, for that matter, had we not purposely delayed to give the ponies a chance to regain condition. It was certainly better to let the carpenter and his company straighten up first, and in our slack hours we were to live in the palatial hut, got the house in order, put up knick-knacks, and settled into our appointed corners with our personal gear and professional impedimenta only at the last moment a day or two before the big depot-laying sledge journey was appointed to start. Simpson and Ponting had the best allotments in the hut, because the former had to accommodate anometers, barometers, thermometers, motor bells and a diversity of scientific instruments, but yet leave room to sleep amongst them without being electrocuted, while the latter had to arrange a small-sized dark room, eight feet by six feet floor dimension, for all of his developing of films and plates for stowing photographic gear and cinematograph, and for everything in connection with his important and beautiful work as camera artist to the expedition. Ponting, likewise, slept where he worked, so a bed was also included in the dark room. Before moving the chronometers ashore, Pennell, Rennick and I myself took astronomical observations to determine independently the position and observation spot on the beach at Cape Evans. The preliminary position gave us latitude 77 degrees, 38 minutes, 23 seconds south, and longitude 166 degrees, 33 minutes, 24 seconds east. A more accurate determination was arrived at by running meridian distances from New Zealand and taking occultations during the ensuing winter for longitude. Latitudes were obtained by the mean results of star north and south and meridian altitudes of the sun above and below the pole. Before getting busy with the preliminaries for the big depot journey, I took stock of the fresh meat in the grotto. The list of frozen flesh which I handed over to Clissold, the cook, looked luxurious enough, for it included nothing less than 700 pounds of beef, 100 sheep carcasses, two pheasants, three oxtails and three tongues, 10 pounds of sweetbread, one box of kidneys, 10 pounds of suet, 82 penguins, and 11 skewer gulls. The cook's corner in the hut was very roomy, and if my memory serves me all right, our cooking range was of a similar pattern to the one supplied to the royal yacht, Alexandra. On January 19th, a snow road was made over the ice foot to the south side of Cape Evans, in order to save the ponies' legs and hooves. The Siberian ponies were not shod, and this rough volcanic rock would have shaken them considerably. A great deal of the bay ice was broken away and drifted out of the sound, so that by the 20th the ship was only a few hundred yards from Hurrah Beach. This day, Rennick, smiling from ear to ear, came across the ice with a pianola in bits conveyed on a couple of sledges. He fixed it up with great cleverness at one end of the hut, and it was quite wonderful to see how he stripped it on board 
brought it through all sorts of spaces, transported it undamaged over the ice and rocky beach, and re-erected it, tuned it, and then played home sweep home. What with the pianola going all out, the gramophone giving us Melba records, and the ship's company gramophone squawking out Harry Lauder's opposition numbers, ponting cinematographing everything of interest and worthy of pictorial record, and little Anton rushing round with nosebags for the ponies, Mears and Dimitri careering with the dog teams over the ice, beach, packing cases and whatnot, sailors with coloured tamashantas bobbing around in piratical style, the hot sun beating down and brightening up everything, one might easily have imagined this to be a circus scene in the great Antarctic joyride film. Everything ran on wheels in these days, and it was difficult to imagine that in three months there would be no sun, that this sweltering beach would be encrusted with ice, and that the cold, dark winter would be upon us. The 21st was quite an exciting day. Captain Scott woke me at 4am to tell me that the ship was in difficulties. I got up at once, called four seamen, and with Uncle Bill we all went on to the floe. The ice to which the ship was fast had broken away, and so we helped her re-moor with her ice anchors. Petty Officer Evans went adrift on the floe, but we got him back in the pram. We turned in again at 5.15 and set a watch but at 6.30 the Terra Nova hoisted an ensign at the main, a prearranged signal, and so all hands again went out and got her ice anchors. She slipped the ends of the wire hawsers, holding them, and stood out onto the sound. The ice was breaking up fast. A swell was rolling in and causing the big floes to grind and crunch in rather an alarming fashion. Fortunately, Pennell had raised steam, which was just as well, for before he got clear the ship was only half a cable from Cape Evans which lay dead to leeward. She was well out of it. We took the wire hawsers, pram and ice anchors to our winter quarters and kept them in readiness for the ship's return, and then had a delightful breakfast with appetites sharpened from the early morning exercise and the chill wind. Afterwards, we continued the preparations for the depot trip and got eight out of eleven sledges fitted up with the bulk of their gear and a portion of the stores. About 3pm, the Terra Nova came in, and just as she was turning to come alongside the fast ice, she struck a rock with only twelve feet of water on it. This pinnacle, as it proved to be, lay within twenty feet of a sounding of eleven fathoms. Pennell immediately sounded all round, shifted several tons of weight aft, and with the engines going full speed astern, he made his crew run from side to side and roll the ship. Scott sent me out in the whaler with a party to assist the ship. We sounded all round and quickly made a plan of the relative disposition of the soundings round the Terra Nova. However, as we finished, the ship moved astern and successfully floated. The crew gave us three cheers, and we cheered lustily from the whaler. Pennell, as usual, was quite equal to the occasion when the ship struck. He was absolutely master of the situation, cool, decided and successful. I was thankful to see the ship floating again. Unlike the Discovery expedition, we had no plans for a relief ship. When I told Captain Scott that the Terra Nova had run ashore, he took it splendidly. We ran down to the beach, and when we beheld the ship on a lee shore heeling over to the wind, a certain amount of sea and swell coming in from the northward, and with the ultimate fate of the expedition looking black and doubtful, Scott was quite cheerful, and he immediately set about to cope with the situation as coolly as though he were talking out his plans for a sledge journey. 
After the Terra Nova got off this intruding rock, she was steamed round to the edge of the fast ice, near the glacier tongue which juts out between Cape Evans and Cape Barn. We placed her ice anchors, and after that Wilson and I went on board and had a yarn with Pennell, whom we brought back to tea. Scott was awfully nice to him about the grounding, and told him of his own experience in 1904, when the Discovery was bumping heavily in a gale just after freeing herself from the ice at Hut Point. Nelson, Griffith, Taylor, Mears and Day helped me with the sledge packing until 11.30pm, when we rolled into our bunks tired out and immediately fell asleep. The next day, a Sunday, was entirely devoted to preparing personal gear for the depot journey. This means fitting lamp wick straps to our fur boots or finisco, picking from our kids a proportion of putties and socks, sewing more lamp wick onto our fur gloves so that these could hang from our shoulders when it was necessary to uncover our hands. We also had to fit drawstrings to our windproof blouses and adjust our headgear according to our individual fancy. And finally, tobacco and smoker's requisites would be added to the little bundle, which all packed up neatly in a pillow slip This personal bag served also as a pillow. And now it's time to listen to some silence. I remember his odd expression, a court, and wanting to laugh but finding my face rigid and inflexible. The devil's about again, so help me God, he cried in a voice thin with terror, running about in circles. And then the group on the stairs scattered as at the sound of a shot, and the colonel and Dr. Silence came down three steps at a time leaving the afflicted Miss Rage to the care of a single attendant. We were out across the front lawn in a moment, and round the corner of the house, the colonel leading. Silence and I were at his heels, and the portly butler, puffing some distance in the rear, getting more and more mixed in his addresses to God and to the devil. And the moment we passed the stables, and came into view of the laundry building, we saw a wicked-looking volume of smoke pouring out of the narrow windows, and the frightened women servants and grooms running hither and thither, calling aloud as they ran. The arrival of the master restored order instantly, and this retired soldier, poor thinker perhaps, but capable man of action, had the matter in hand from the start. He issued orders like a martinet, and almost before I could realise it, there were streaming buckets on the scene, and a line of men and women formed between the building and the stable pump. Inside, I heard John Silence cry, and the colonel followed him through the door, while I was just quick enough at their heels to hear him add, The smoke's the worst part of it. There's no fire yet, I think. And true enough, there was no fire. The interior was thick with smoke, but it speedily cleared and not a single bucket was used upon the floor or walls. The air was stifling, the heat was fearful. There's precious little in here to burn. It's all stone, the colonel exclaimed, coughing but the doctor was pointing to the wooden covers of the great cauldron in which the clothes were washed, and he saw that these were smouldering and charred. And when we sprinkled half a bucket of water on them, the surrounding bricks hissed and fizzed and sent up clouds of steam. Through the open door and windows this passed out with the rest of the smoke, and we three stood there on the brick floor, staring at the spot and wondering, each in our own fashion, how in the name of natural law the place could have caught fire or smoked at all and each was silent. Myself from sheer incapacity and befuddlement, the colonel from the quiet pluck that faces all things yet speaks little, and John Silence 
from the intense mental grappling with this latest manifestation of a profound problem that called for concentration of thought rather than for any words. There was really nothing to say. The facts were indisputable. Colonel Rage was the first to utter. My sister, he said briefly, and moved off. In the yard I heard him sending the frightened servants about their business in an excellently matter-of-fact voice, scolding someone roundly for making such a big fire and letting the flues get overheated, and paying no heed to the stammering reply that no fire had been lit there for several days. Then he dispatched a groom on horseback for the local doctor. Then Dr. Silence turned and looked at me. The absolute control he possessed, not only over the outward expression of emotion by gesture, change of colour, light in the eyes and so forth, but also, as I well knew, over its very birth in his heart, the mask-like face of the dead he could assume at will, made it extremely difficult to know at any given moment what was at work in his inner consciousness. But now, when he turned and looked at me, there was no sphinx expression there but rather the keen, triumphant face of a man who had solved a dangerous and complicated problem and saw his way to a clean victory. Now, do you guess? he asked quietly, as though it were the simplest matter in the world and ignorance were impossible. I could only stare stupidly and remain silent. He glanced down at the charred cauldron lids and traced a figure in the air with his finger. But I was too excited or too mortified or still too dazed, perhaps, to see what it was he outlined, or what it was he meant to convey. I could only go on staring and shaking my puzzled head. "'A fire elemental!' he cried. "'A fire elemental of the most powerful and malignant kind!' "'A what?' thundered the voice of Colonel Rage behind us, having returned suddenly and overheard. "'It's a fire elemental,' repeated Dr. Silence more calmly, but with a note of triumph in his voice that he could not keep out and a fire elemental enraged. The light began to dawn in my mind at last, but the colonel, who had never heard the term before, and was besides feeling considerably worked up for a plain man with all this mystery he knew not how to grapple with, the colonel stood with the most dumbfounded look ever seen on a human countenance, and continued to roar and stammer and to stare. And why, he began, savage with the desire to find something visible he could fight, why, in all the blazes, and then stopped, as John Silence moved up and took his arm. There, my dear Colonel Rage, he said gently, you touch the heart of the whole thing. You ask why. That is precisely our problem. He held the soldier's eyes firmly with his own, and that too I think we shall soon know. Come, and let us talk over a plan of action, that room with the double doors, perhaps. The word action calmed him a little, and he led the way without further speech back into the house and down the long stone passage to the room where we had heard his stories on the night of our arrival. I understood from the doctor's glance that my presence would not make the interview easier for our host, and I went upstairs to my own room, shaking. But in the solitude of my room the vivid memories of the last hour revived so mercilessly that I began to feel I should never in my whole life lose the dreadful picture of Miss Rage running, that dreadful human climax after all the non-human mystery in the woods, and I was not sorry when a servant knocked at my door and said that Colonel Rage would be glad if I would join him in the little smoking-room. "'I think it is better you should be present,' was all Colonel Rage said as I entered the room. 
I took the chair with my back to the window. There was still an hour before lunch, though, and I imagined that the usual divisions of the day hardly found a place in the thoughts of any one of us. The atmosphere of the room was what I might call electric. The colonel was positively bristling. He stood with his back to the fire, fingering an unlit black cigar, his face flushed, his being obviously roused and ready for action. He hated this mystery. It was poisonous to his nature, and he longed to meet something face to face, something he could gauge and fight. Dr. Silence, I noticed at once, was sitting before the map of the estate which was spread upon the table. I knew by his expression the state of his mind. He was in the thick of it all, knew it, delighted in it, and was working at high pressure. He recognised my presence with a lifted eyelid and the flash of one eye, which contrasted with the stillness and composure. It told me volumes. I was about to explain to our host briefly what seems to me afoot in all this business, he said without looking up, when he asked that you should join us so that we can all work together. And while signifying my assent, I caught myself wondering what quality it was in the calm speech of this undemonstrative man that was so full of power, so charged with the strange virile personality behind it, and that seemed to inspire us with his own confidence as a process of radiation. Mr. Hubbard, he went on gravely, turning to the soldier, knows something of my methods, and in more than one, um, interesting situation, has proved of assistance. What we want now, and here he suddenly got up and took his place on the mat beside the colonel, and looked hard at him, is men who have self-control, who are sure of themselves, whose minds at the critical moment will emit positive forces, instead of wavering and uncertain currents due to negative feelings, due, for instance, to fear. He looked at us, each in turn. Colonel Rage moved his feet further apart and squared his shoulders, and I felt guilty but said nothing, conscious that my latent store of courage was being deliberately hauled to the front. He was winding me up like a clock. So that, in what is yet to come, continued our leader, each of us will contribute his share of power and ensure success for my plan. I'm not afraid of anything I can see, said the colonel bluntly. I'm ready, I heard myself say, as if it were automatically, for anything, and then added, feeling the declaration was lamely insufficient, and everything. Dr. Silence left the mat and began walking to and fro about the room, both hands plunged deep into the pockets of his shooting jacket. Tremendous vitality streamed from him. I never took my eyes off the small moving figure. Small, yes, and yet somehow making me think of a giant plotting the destruction of worlds. And his manner was gentle, as always soothing almost, and his words uttered quietly without emphasis or emotion. Most of what he said was addressed, though not too obviously, to the colonel. The violence of this sudden attack, he said softly, pacing to and fro beneath the bookcase at the end of the room, is due, of course, partly to the fact that tonight the moon is at full. Here he glanced at me for a moment. And partly to the fact that we've all been so deliberately concentrating upon the matter. Our thinking, our investigation, has stirred it into unusual activity. I mean that some intelligent force behind these manifestations has realised that someone is busied about its destruction, and it is now on the defensive. More, it is actually aggressive. 
But it, what's is it? began the soldier, fuming. What in the name of all that's dreadful is a fire elemental? I cannot give you at this moment, replied Dr. Silence, turning to him, but undisturbed by the interruption, a lecture on the nature and history of magic, but can only say that an elemental is an active force behind the elements, whether earth, air, water, or fire. It is impersonal in its essential nature, but can be focused, personified, in soul, say to say, by those who know how, by magicians, if you will, for certain purposes of their own, much in the same way that steam and electricity can be harnessed by the practical man of this century. Alone, these blind elemental energies can accomplish little, but governed and directed by the trained will of a powerful manipulator, they may become potent activities for good or evil. They are the basis of all magic, and it is the motive behind them that constitutes the magic black or white. They can be vehicles of curses or of blessings, for a curse is nothing more than the thought of a violent will perpetuated, and in such cases, Cases like this, the conscious directing will of the mind that is using the elemental, stands always behind the phenomena. You think that my brother, broke in the colonel, aghast, has nothing whatever to do with it directly. The fire elemental that has been here has been tormenting you and your household, was sent upon its mission long before you, or your family, or your ancestors, or even the nation you belong to, unless I'm much mistaken, was even in existence. We will come to that a little later. After the experiment I propose to make, we shall be more positive. At present, I can only say that we have to deal now not only with the phenomena of attacking fire, merely, but with the vindictive and enraged intelligence that is directing it from behind the scenes. Vindictive and enraged, he repeated the words. That explains, began Colonel Rage, seeking furiously for words he could not find. March, said John Silence, with a gesture to restrain him. He stopped a moment in the middle of his walk, and a deep silence came down over the little room. Through the windows the sunlight seemed less bright, the long line of dark hills less friendly, making me think of a vast wave towering to heaven and about to break and overwhelm us. Something formidable had crept into the world about us, for undoubtedly there was a disquieting thought, holding terror as well as awe in the picture his words conjured up. The conception of a human will, reaching its deathless hand, spiteful and destructive, down through the ages, to strike the living and afflict the innocent. But what is its object? burst out the soldier, unable to restrain himself longer in the silence. Why does it come from that plantation? And why should it attack us, or anyone in particular? Questions began to pour from him in a stream. All in good time, the doctor answered quietly, having let him run on for several minutes. But I must first discover positively what or who it is that directs this particular fire elemental, and to do that we must first, he spoke with slow deliberation, seek to capture, to confine this visibility, to limit its sphere in a concrete form. Good heavens almighty! exclaimed the soldier, mixing his words in his unfeigned surprise. Quite so, pursued the other calmly. For in doing so, I think we can release it from the purpose that binds it, restore to it its normal condition of latent fire, and also, he lowered his voice perceptibly, also discover the face and form of the being that ensouls it. 
the man behind the gun, cried the colonel, beginning to understand something, and leaning forward so as not to miss a single syllable. I mean that in the last resort, before it returns to the womb of potential fire, it will probably assume the face and figure of its director, of the man of magical knowledge who originally bound it with his incantations, and sent it forth upon its mission of sentries. The soldier sat down, breathing hard, but it was a very subdued voice that framed the question. And how do you propose to make it visible? How to capture and confine it? What do you mean, Dr. John Silence? By furnishing it with the materials for reform, by the process of materialization, simply. Once limited by dimensions, it will become slow, heavy, visible. We can then dissipate it. Invisible fire, you see, is dangerous and incalculable. Locked up in a form, we can perhaps manage it. We must betray it to its death. And this material, we asked in the same breath, although I think I had already guessed. Not pleasant, but effective, came the quiet reply. The exhalations of freshly spilled blood. Not human blood, cried Colonel Rage, starting up from his chair with a voice like an explosion. I thought his eyes would start from their sockets. The face of Dr. Silence relaxed in spite of himself, and his spontaneous little laugh brought her welcome, though momentary, relief. The days of human sacrifice, I hope, will never come again, he explained. Animal blood will answer the purpose, and we can make the experiment as pleasant as possible. Only, the blood must be freshly spilled, and strong with the vital emanations that attract this particular class of elemental creature. Perhaps, perhaps if some pig on the estate is ready for market? He turned to hide a smile. But the passing touch of comedy found no echo in the mind of our host, who did not understand how to change quickly from one emotion to another. Clearly he was debating many things, laboriously, in his honest brain. But in the end the earnestness and scientific disinterestedness of the doctor, whose influence over him was already very great, won the day and he presently looked up more calmly and observed shortly that he thought perhaps the matter could be arranged. There are other and pleasanter methods, said Dr. Silence, as he went on to explain, but they require time and preparation, and things have gone much too far, in my opinion, to admit of delay. And the process need cause you no distress. We sit round the bowl and await results. Nothing more. The emanations of blood, which, as Levi says, is the first incarnation of the universal fluid, furnish the materials out of which the creature of discarnate life, spirits, if you prefer, can fashion themselves a temporary appearance. The process is old, and lies at the root of all blood sacrifice. It was known to the priests of Baal, and it is known to modern ecstasy dancers who cut themselves to produce objective phantoms who dance with them. And the least gifted clairvoyant could tell you that the forms to be seen in the vicinity of slaughterhouses or hovering above the deserted battlefields are, well, simply beyond all description. I do not mean, he added, noticing the uneasy fidgeting of our host, that anything in our laundry experiment need appear to terrify us, for this case seems a comparatively simple one, and it is only the vindictive character of the intelligence directing this fire elemental that causes anxiety and makes for personal danger. It is curious, said the colonel with a sudden rush of words, drawing a deep breath and, though speaking of things distasteful to him, 
that during my years amongst the hill tribes of northern India, I came across, personally came across, instances of the sacrifices of blood, to certain deities being stopped suddenly, and all manner of disasters happening until they were resumed. Fires broke out in the huts, even on the clothes of the natives, and, and I admit I have read in the course of my studies, he made a gesture towards his books and heavily laden table, of the Yezdizis of Syria, evoking phantoms by means of cutting their bodies with knives during the whirling dances, enormous globes of fire, which turned into monstrous, terrible forms. And I remember an account somewhere, too, of how the emaciated forms and pallid countenances of the spectres that appeared to the Emperor Julian claimed to be true immortals, and told him to renew the sacrifices of blood, for the fumes of which, since the establishment of Christianity, they had been pining, that these were, in reality, the phantoms evoked by the rites of blood. Both Dr. Silence and myself listened in amazement, for this sudden speech was so unexpected and betrayed so much more knowledge than had either of us suspected in the old soldier. Then perhaps you have read too, said the doctor, how the cosmic deities of savage races, elemental in their nature, have been kept alive through many ages by these blood rites. No, he answered, that is new to me. In any case, Dr. Silence added, I am glad you're not wholly unfamiliar with the subject, for you will now bring more sympathy, and therefore more help to our experiment. For of course in this case, we only want the blood to tempt the creature from its lair, and to enclose it in a form. I quite understand, and I only hesitated just now, he went on, his words coming much more slowly as though he felt he had already said too much, because I wished to be quite sure it was no mere curiosity but an actual sense of necessity that dictated this horrible experiment. It is your safety, and that of your household, and of your sister, that is at stake, replied the doctor. Once I have seen, I hope to discover whence this elemental comes, and what its real purpose is. Colonel Rage signified his assent with a bow. And the moon will help us, the other said, for it will be full in the early hours of the morning. This kind of elemental being is always most active at that period of full moon. Hence, you see, the clue furnished by your diary. So it was finally settled. Colonel Rage would provide the materials for the experiment, and we were to meet at midnight. How he would contrive at that hour, but that was his business. I only know we both realised that he would keep his word, and whether a pig died at midnight or at noon was, after all, perhaps only a question of the sleep and personal comfort of the executioner. Tonight, then, in the laundry, said Dr. Silence, finally, to clinch the plan. We three alone, and at midnight, when the household is asleep and we shall be free from disturbance. He exchanged significant glances with our host, who at that moment was called away by the announcement that the family doctor had arrived and was ready to see him in his sister's room. And that's all for today, except to remind you of my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history on the War of 1812. Also, Starborn, a science fiction novel by Andre Norton. And, of course the final volume of my magnum opus, The History of the Peninsula War by Charles Oman.
As a bit of a side job, I'm also narrating the full rules to the role-playing game called Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game. Please go to patreon.com and search for Felbrigg. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. Until next time.